to Revelation chapter 5. This evening I'm going to preach a sermon that I'd actually intended to preach just before Christmas. Uh, There were some scheduling changes that we had to do, which didn't make it possible for me to do that, but this was going to be a part of the Christmas messages, and uh, I I wanted to keep everything in order, so with the schedule changes that we had, I, I thought I'd just save this message for tonight as we would go right on in order with our study. So you just pretend that it's Christmas, and uh, I'm going to preach this message to you. Now, Actually, of course, we don't know when Jesus was born, so any time of the year that we decided to preach a message like this would be an appropriate time. Uh, Tonight I'm going to talk to you about the uh, incarnation of Christ in relation to this fifth chapter. The purpose of Christ coming into the world is really the subject of what we're reading here. Uh, Jesus came into the world for the purpose of redemption. He came to reclaim the uh, sinless innocence that Adam lost in the fall. And he came to bring us back to where we're reconciled with God and we could have fellowship with him. And the only way that Jesus was able to do that is that he would come to this earth, that he would be born in Bethlehem's manger, he would take on human flesh, and so in all ways, Jesus could be a suitable Savior. The theme of Revelation chapter 5 is so closely tied to Christmas that it's really almost a tragedy that there aren't more Christmas messages that are preached from this particular chapter. Now, you may yet need to be convinced of that, and so we're going to look at the Scriptures tonight, and we see here the real purpose for Christ's incarnation. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. We're going to look at the entire fifth chapter tonight, but let's begin reading verses 1 through 4, and then we'll read the other verses as we go through the message. Uh, John writes in verse number 1, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. Heavenly Father, as we come to you tonight, we just ask that you'd open up your word to us tonight and how we rejoice in the incarnation of Christ, Jesus coming into the world for redemption to save us from our sins. So help us, Lord, as we look at your word this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Chapter 5 is a scene in heaven where we see God the Father sitting on the throne. Last week we were studying in chapter 4, and there we saw that the person sitting on the throne was actually Christ, And the reason that we see him sitting on that throne is because the throne in chapter 4 is a throne of judgment. In his earthly ministry, uh, Jesus said that all judgment had been committed unto the Son. And so when we talk about judgment, the one we see on the throne is Jesus. But as we come into this fifth chapter, it's evident that the person sitting on the throne is God the Father. And we really shouldn't be confused about that because... Uh, The throne is a throne for God the Father and God the Son. And the reason that we see different, uh, the the different ones sitting on the throne at a different time is depending upon the type of work that's being, being done there. As I said, judgment is committed to the Son, and so he would sit on a throne of judgment. But here we see that the purpose of God the Father sitting on this throne is that he is the one who is the director of everything that he has planned and purposed. 
The one who sits on this throne is God the Father. And John says that he saw in the Father's hand a book, and this book was sealed with seven seals written on both sides. Now, it's important for us to understand that this is not a book like we think of today, not a book like the Bible that we have here with uh, two covers and pages that are in between. But the book he's speaking of here is a scroll. And uh, these kind of books that we read out of today, they they didn't have those until the 3rd century. And, of course, they didn't have a printing press where they could print books out like we have until the 15th century. And so the book that John sees here is different. This is a scroll. And uh, what this was was actually leafless of papyrus that were sewn together, and then they were rolled up like a paper towel, like a roll of paper towels. And affixed to the edges of the scroll were seals so that you could unroll the book only so far, and then a seal would prevent you from unrolling it further. Then when you broke that seal, you could read a little bit further until there was another seal, until you came to the second seal. Then you'd have to break that seal, unroll the scroll a little bit further so you could read what was written there. And so you would do that through all seven of these uh, seals until the entire scroll was completely rolled out and it all could be read. So this is what John saw. And I I wish that I could just tell you how important it was with this uh, trip that we made to Israel last year, how important it was for understanding some of the things that we read about in the Bible. I have a picture up here on the screen, and what you're looking at is a roll of the book of Isaiah, a scroll of the book of Isaiah that's in the Museum of the Dead Sea Scrolls in Jerusalem. And this scroll is nearly 2,000 years old. It contains almost the complete uh, book of Isaiah, and when it's all rolled out, it reaches a length of 44 feet. So all of that was rolled up, and there's the book that you would read. And this is comparable to what John saw in the hand of God the Father. So he sees a scroll here. Well, we want to look at this scroll tonight and see what that's all about. So what is the scroll? Well, it's a scroll of redemption. Number one, it's a scroll of redemption. It's a scroll that tells about the redemption of the world. Now, a very notable characteristic about this scroll is that John sees that there's writing on both sides of it. And we might be tempted to overlook the significance of that, but it's very important because what that tells us that uh, the scroll is completely filled up. There's nothing that's to be added to it. All of it's there, which shows us that the redemption that God has planned for us is a complete redemption. God never adds anything to his plan. He never takes away from it. The plan of redemption was completely filled out and worked out so that there is no part of it whatsoever that God has left undone. You see, the God that we serve has no guesswork. God never works upon contingencies. He's a sovereign God that never waits to see what what we'll do in order for God to plan what he will do. Unfortunately, there are some people in their theology who have a God who is a wait-and-see God, that he waits to see what man will do, and then God acts accordingly. But not the God that we serve. He has already everything that's planned out. And so this picture that we see in the book of Revelation here in chapter 5, God has this scroll in his hands, and this scroll has been there from the council halls of eternity. Before Adam was born, before we were born, before the world was ever created, God had a plan that was drawn up. It was complete in every detail, and God always works according to that plan. So things don't change in God's plan. And this scroll is written on both sides to show us that God never confers with anyone. He never counsels with anyone. He never subtracts or never adds to his perfect plans. 
So this is a scroll of redemption that was written before you and I were born and before Adam was created. What does the scroll say? I mean, what's the purpose of it? Well, the book, or this scroll, is actually the deed to the earth. This book tells that the earth belongs to God. So this is the title deed. I think most of you are probably familiar with deeds. Brother Johnson back there and his wife, they're very familiar with deeds working in real estate. When you uh, buy a house, you're given a deed to that house. And the deed describes the property that you own. It lists all the parameters. It tells you the boundary lines of your property. So that's a description then. And this is what this title deed is all about. It's a description of what God owns. The psalmist said, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. Now, I can make that very simple for you. What the Bible says is that everything in heaven and earth all belongs to God. And this is a title deed that describes all of that. But then secondly, it says something else. It, it tells us what God owns, but it's also a description of the earth's recovery. Everything in the world belongs to God, but someone has usurped God's authority. Now, the world wasn't taken away from God because no one is able to take anything away that God doesn't permit. But God did permit Satan for a time to take control of this earth and all of its systems. When you read about this in the Word of God, you'll see that Satan is described as the God of this world. And you'll notice the Scripture puts a little g on that word God there because Satan only works according to the amount of power that God allows him to have. Well, in the Garden of Eden, when uh, Satan tempted Adam and Eve and Adam fell into sin, God lost the inheritance of God. Uh, Adam had been created in a perfect state and a perfect state of innocence, and so he had been given control of the entire earth. And if you remember the story, God told Adam, he said, go out and be, multi- be fruitful, multiply, and, 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 he, and he tells him there to, to uh, have dominion over the entire earth. But when Adam sinned, he forfeited that right to the world's inheritance. And so Satan was able to usurp God's authority. And since that time, since Adam sinned, Satan has been in control of the systems of this world. One thing that God never did plan, though, is that Satan would maintain that control forever. And so God has put together a plan, this plan from the foundation of the world in which he uh, sets out all of the things that are going to take place in a plan for recovery of what Adam lost. So this is God's plan of redemption, and it's the redemption of Jesus Christ. Now, what might be a little bit confusing to us is that when we think about redemption, most of us think about the cross, and we confine the redemption of man to what happened on the cross. But redemption doesn't just concern what happened on the cross. Now, the cross, of course, is the most important part of redemption. This is the part where God reached down and he did something with our lives and he changes us and he saves us. But God's not through with everything just because he saved man. But God rather has a plan in which he's going to redeem the entire world from the curse that was placed upon it because of the fall. And so whenever you hear things uh, about like the tribulation and you hear about calamity, when you hear about the great white throne judgment, when you hear of God's judgment upon Satan and on his, on his uh, uh, evil angels, when you hear about the bottomless pit, when you hear about Armageddon, when you hear about the millennial reign of Christ, all of that 
is considered in God's plan of redemption. And all of that is what it takes for God to reclaim this entire world and to win it back to himself so he has this inheritance for us. But what we don't want to lose sight of when we think about all these things that we read about in Revelation is that it took Jesus Christ, it took him in the incarnation, coming into this world, being a a baby that's born in Bethlehem. It took him because redemption revolves around this plan of Jesus Christ coming into the world. So God's plan of redemption does not work. It cannot work without the incarnation of Christ. And so unless there is that pure, innocent, sweet little baby that's born in Bethlehem, then there is no redemption. But as horrible as all of these things that we read about in the book of Revelation are, as horrible as God's judgments are, there is still that mercy and the compassion of Jesus Christ for those who are considered in his redemption plan. Now let's go a little bit further here. Let's see what John saw. If you look at verse number 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because there was no one found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. So what does John see as he peers into heaven and he sees God the Father on his throne? Well, he sees something taking place there, and that is the search for the Redeemer. Heaven and earth is searched. Now, here is a book that's in the right hand of God, and there's a cry that goes up from a mighty angel. And the angel says, who is worthy to open this book? Who is it that has the qualifications? Who has the rights to open this up and to implement this entire plan of God's redemption? And so the angel asks, where can we find someone? Who has the proper rights? Who has the power? Who has the ability to redeem? And that's not an easy question to answer. I mean, man is the one who originally had been given dominion, but then man fell and he forfeited that right. And so his sin makes him unworthy, makes him unqualified to redeem what he lost because of that sin. Now surely we can understand that, that man is a sinner and the scripture is saying all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Man lost his rights. And if he lost his right by sin, then sinful man could never be qualified to redeem. And so a search is made and the scripture says, No man is found worthy to open the book. And John says there is no man in heaven, there's none in earth, there's none under the earth who's worthy. Now we're going to examine all of those scenarios just briefly this evening. If you'll look at the scriptures here, you'll notice that the word man there in that scripture is in italics, which we know means that it's not in the original manuscript. Rather, the translators have supplied that. And so we would better read this, that there is no one in heaven. There is no one in earth. There is no one under the earth who is able to open this book. So that tells us, first, that there is no angel that can redeem. No one in heaven. That's a reference to all of God's celestial creatures. So none of the elect holy angels of God, these angels that are so great in might and power, they're not able to redeem. Now, in chapter 4, we saw that there were angels at the throne, in the throne room had special duties that they stayed right there in that throne room and they worshiped God around the throne and they proclaimed the holiness of God. But the cherubim and the seraphim that we think that that refers to, they're not qualified for this work. And that's because they lack a very significant element. That is that angels are not related to man. 
Now, this title deed that was lost is man's right to this inheritance. And to understand better about this, we really have to go into the Old Testament and to see how that property rights were handled during that time. Now, I don't have time to go into all of this in detail, uh, but we do have an explanation somewhat of this in the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth is a story about property rights. It's the story about the rights of someone who's called the kinsman redeemer. Ruth was a Moabitess who was married to an Israelite. And when her husband died, the only one who had the right to marry Ruth and to claim the inheritance that was in the family was a kinsman of Ruth's. So no one else had the right to marry her and to redeem the land that belonged to her husband. Now, if someone was related to her, if they were related to the family, then if an Israelite lost his land, then someone who is a relative, a kinsman, could come and he could claim that land, he could buy that land because the family's the only one who has a right to that. And so in the story of Ruth, we know that Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. He was a relative of Ruth's, and so he had a right to marry Ruth and to buy the land that had belonged to her husband's family. Now, if you remember the story, that, that land was lost when Elimelech, who was Ruth's father-in-law, uh, went into Moab. He forfeited the rights to his property, and then while they were in Moab, Elimelech died. Well, Ruth came back to Israel, and in order to have the land redeemed that belonged to her husband, the only way that she could have a part of that is if she was to marry someone who was the relative, who was the kinsman. And so that's who she married. She married Boaz, who we refer to as a kinsman redeemer. Now, here's what we have is the problem with the angels. Angels are not related to man. They have no kinship with man. They're of a completely separate order, and they don't have the rights and the privileges of men. So they're not, they're not qualified. Uh, they can't redeem because they're not related to us, and they don't have rights to this inheritance. So the angels, they're ruled out of this. Then we also see that when uh, earth is searched, that there are no humans that can redeem. And I explained that just a moment ago. There, there is no, no man who hasn't seen. Uh, sin, rather. And so if you, if you go into all the corners of the world, dig as deep as you can, you'll never find a person who's not a sinner. No man, no person upon this earth has ever gone without sinning. And so man doesn't have the qualifications to redeem. We lost those rights. So man is ruled out. But then it tells us that another area is searched, and it says it's under the earth. And what that tells us is that demons can't redeem. Now, I I don't think I have to go into much explanation of that. Demons are sinners. There is no plan of redemption for the devil and his angels. And, of course, they're angels, which means they're on the same order as the holy angels of God. They were created in the same way. And so they have no kinship with man, and so they are excluded. So what's the result of the search then? Well, heaven is looked into, and no person, no no, uh, angel is found there. No being is found in heaven that can redeem. The earth is searched, and man is completely ruled out. There's no one there who can redeem. The underworld is searched, and automatically that's ruled out because of the sin that's there. And so we find that there's no one who is qualified in any respect to take that scroll out of the Father's hand and begin to open the seals of the scroll and then to bring redemption to this world. So what does John do? Well, he sees that there is no one. And so he goes into despair and he begins to weep about this. All is lost. There is no hope. Salvation cannot be accomplished because there is no one qualified, no one worthy. And so man is ultimately lost. But he looks further and then the word comes to him that there is hope. 
God's plan of redemption will not go unfulfilled because there is a Redeemer. Now, like the song says, there is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. So let's look then at verse number 5. It says, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So there is a Redeemer. Well, who is he? Well, he is, first, the Lamb. He's the one who can save. Verse 6 says, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a Lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. So there's a Lamb who can save. John the Baptist declared him to be so when he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. When did John say that? Well, that was right before Jesus entered into his public ministry, into his earthly ministry. Now, there's something that we need to make a note of, that this was during Christ's earthly ministry. Now, that's why we need to go to the Christmas story. Jesus is qualified because he's the God-man. Now, remember then, who is it that has the right to redeem? Well, the inheritance of man can only be redeemed by someone who is related to man. He has to be related to man in the flesh, but he cannot be related to man in the sense that he is also a sinner. Well, Jesus came to the earth, and he related to man because the Bible says he was God incarnate. He came in the flesh, and yet he didn't have the sin of man. He took on the flesh in order to be made like his brethren. That's what Hebrews says. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So Jesus came in the flesh, but he didn't come as all other men have come. Every person who's born into this world has a sinful nature. Adam, when he sinned, became a sinner. And so he passed that sinful nature unto all people who came after him. And that's why every one of us here tonight, all of us sitting here, we're all sinners. Now, what most people don't realize, though, is that the sinful nature is passed on from the father to the child. It's not our mothers who have given us a sinful nature. Adam is the one who is responsible for Uh, disobeying God and God held him accountable and so when Adam sinned he received that sinful nature and through the seed of Adam that sinful nature is passed down to all people but has anybody ever heard the story of Jesus what does the Bible say Jesus was born of a virgin he didn't have a human as his father and so when Jesus was conceived his father was the Holy Ghost and so there was no sinful nature that was passed to him And the angel came to Joseph and told him specifically, there is no woman that has touched Mary, or no man, I should say. The angel said, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And the Bible is very clear about that. It wants us to understand it very clearly. No man had any relations with Mary, not even Joseph, the one who was espoused her. He had no relation with her. This child came from the Holy Ghost. So Jesus is qualified to redeem because he is a kinsman to man and he's without sin. So Jesus is able to do what no man can do, what no angel could do, what no other being that's ever been created could do. And that's because he is virgin born. 
And so the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is not some fanciful, unimportant myth. You can't pass this off and say, well, it's not important. We don't need to worry about that. It doesn't make any difference whether Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit or not. It makes all the difference in the world because we cannot be redeemed. There's no one who's worthy to open that book unless he is sinless. And Jesus must be absolutely sinless. And so he's the only one qualified to open those seals, and without him, redemption can't happen. And so we could very easily say, without the Christmas story, the whole world is lost and doomed forever. So John sees Jesus as the Lamb, the one who's worthy to open those seals and the one who can save. But then he also sees Jesus in another picture, and that is he is the lion. He's the one who can subdue. Now, I said that redemption a moment ago. I I said redemption is not just the story of the cross. It's not just the story of Jesus' birth and of Jesus' life, but the whole panorama of redemption includes God's entire plan for the universe. So Jesus providing salvation for man and redemption in that sense is just one step of this. That's the most important part, but it also includes the recovery of this entire world. All of creation must have that curse lifted from it. This is what Ephesians says. Paul says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So how is that done? Well, Jesus must rule as the king. He must, through his power and his might, subdue all enemies. He must put all enemies under his uh, his feet. And so that's why John sees him also as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Lion... Uh, the lion is a symbol of kingship. Back when Jacob blessed his sons, he, he, he put a blessing upon all of them, but he came to Judah, this one son, and he said, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. You may remember we had a message on that Shiloh is reference to Christ until Shiloh come and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So Jesus will rule as a lion, as the king. Now look at verse number 13 for just a moment. It says, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And so the search for Redeemer ends at Jesus Christ. We don't need to look any further. There's nowhere for us to go, no one to look to, because every other person, every other thing is disqualified. Only Jesus can meet all the requirements that are necessary to open this scroll because he's the God-man. He's related to us. He is sinless. He's matchless in his power and his majesty. And so in every way, he's perfectly suitable to be our redeemer. Now, let me mention something here briefly before we go on. Verse number 6 says that he is the lamb as it had been slain. And this is what John saw, a lamb as it had been slain. This is one of those verses that we rely on to tell us that the marks of the crucifixion of Christ will be present in him throughout all of eternity. Now, someone asked me that question just recently. Uh, When Jesus rose bodily, 
the marks of the crucifixion were in his body. And if you remember, he told Thomas, he said, I, I can prove to you that it's me. He said, come over here and, and touch the nail prints in my hands. Thrust your fist into my side and you can tell that it's me. And so when Jesus arose from the dead, the marks were there. But the question is, will they still be there when we get to heaven or, or are they going to be gone? Well, this is one of those verses that we go to and we see here that when John saw him in heaven, he saw this lamb that had been slain. You know, there's a song that uh, very appropriately says that the only thing in heaven made by man is the scars in the hands of Jesus. And I tend to believe that they're still there. Now, I want you to notice also that he says in this verse that the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Horns are symbols of power. And seven horns means that Jesus has all power. As we go through Revelation, we'll see that the horns are used in several different instances, and they refer to power. Then the eyes are symbols of wisdom. Jesus has all wisdom. And then the seven spirits are the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And that tells us, just like Colossians says, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so then, armed with all of this information, that scene in heaven changes. There's no cause for weeping. There's no reason for John to cry here. It's wonderful news. And so the scene completely changes, and it turns into one of singing and shouting. And so next we see that they're singing the song of the redeemed. The song of the redeemed. Now, if you think Christmas carols are beautiful... Just wait till you get to heaven and you hear the singing of heaven. When Jesus stands up, all others bow down and the search is over and then Jesus steps forward and he takes that book out of the Father's hand. He's qualified in every detail to open that scroll. And so he takes the scroll and we'll see as he begins to open those seven seals. So what happens when he takes the book? Well, verse 8 says, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. If you remember, those four beasts are those angelic creatures in chapter 4. The 24 elders are representative of redeemed in all ages, and they all fall down and they worship and adore the Lion and the Lamb. Now, I want us to notice three aspects of this worship. First of all is the announcement of the choice. Verse number 9, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the angels came, and they made an announcement. Charles Wesley wrote that hymn, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Well, this is what we have here. This is an announcement. The one who is worthy is announced. He's the one who is slain. He's the one who has accomplished redemption. And he's the one who did that by shedding his own precious blood. And he redeems people out of every corner of the globe. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this part very long. But this picture that we have here is not a picture of a failed Christ. They're not lauding a redeemer who tried to save people and couldn't, who tried to redeem someone, but he actually couldn't. No, this one for whom, everyone for whom Christ died will be able to sing this song of redemption. Those for whom Christ died are all going to be saved. 
And so the redemption price has been paid, and these people are truly redeemed. So we have a scroll here, and it's filled up not with the failures of Christ. This is filled up with his accomplishments. It's not filled up with names and uh, people and so forth that, that he couldn't save, and he tried to save, but sadly he couldn't. This is redemption accomplished and applied. And so then, those that he died to redeemed are there out of every kindred, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Perish the thought that anybody could think that the scroll in heaven would be a record of what Christ tried to do but failed to do. Now, secondly, we see the acclaim for the choice. And verse 11, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beast and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. I don't know where you'll ever hear a song that's more powerful than this one. Now let's take very quickly now to delineate the worthiness of Christ that we see in this song. First of all, he is worthy of all power. Where? Where is he worthy of all power? Over the entire universe, over all of God's creation. You know, it's easy for us sometimes to stand up and say, yes, God is all-powerful. He's got got over the universe. He's got over everything. Every living creature is under the power of God. What's the most difficult part for us to say? That God has power over my life. That seems to be the hardest thing for us to say. But God does have power over our lives. We can't look to ourselves. We can't look to another. No one else is worthy. I'm not worthy. My plans aren't worthy. My ambitions, my selfishness, I'm not worthy. And so I can't do anything other than pay attention to him and give him the glory and the power. He must have all power. Secondly, in this doxology, we have he's worthy of all riches. It all belongs to him. The most that we could ever accumulate is never going to be enough to give him. No, at his birth, they brought uh, treasures. There was the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. And that was just a wonderful gesture when they brought those things. Well, think about it. If Jesus deserved those things in his birth, what does he deserve after a sinless life? What does Jesus deserve after a selfish death, or or a selfless death, I should say? Well, what does he deserve after all of that? Well, he deserves everything. And so I can't help but give him everything that I have. He deserves all riches. Thirdly, he's worthy of all wisdom. I can think of no thoughts that are higher than to think of him. What should I meditate on day and night but him? Fourthly, he's worthy of all strength. Where is my energy better expended than to put it in God's service? See, the smallest work that we do, the Bible says it receives a reward. Now... When I, why, would, why would I want to give my strength to things that are fleeting, to things of this world that pass away? They're burned up and they go out of existence. There may be some of you tonight who, who think that there are things in your life that actually deserve more attention than Christ does. I want to hear you explain that to him in the judgment, how anything was more important than he is. Number five, he is worthy of all honor. I'm a citizen of his kingdom. And so I will live so as never to bring reproach upon his name. Number six, he's worthy of all glory. The Bible calls him the bright and morning star. And so his radiance fills all of heaven and earth. 
that song that the choir sings, he's beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words. Number seven, he's worthy of all blessing. I will praise him because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Like the song we sing says, hallelujah, he ransomed me. So he's worthy of all blessing. Now, do you notice then again what we've seen here? There's a sevenfold doxology. Seven wonderful acclamations that show us that Jesus Christ is pure divine perfection. He is truly worthy of worship. Now, finally, then, we come to the amen for the choice. Verse 14 says, And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Amen is an expression of agreement. And so all of them, all the creatures, everything in heaven and earth, they say that he is the one worthy who to open this book. Now, this scene is a magnificent prelude to actually one of the darkest period in all of earth's history. To reclaim the earth, to win all of this back, to accomplish final redemption for the earth, the enemies of God must be crushed. And so that prediction in the Garden of Eden that said that the seed of the woman, the virgin-born seed of God, would crush the head of the serpent, this must come to pass, and that has to be done without mercy. There's no compassion There's no easing of this. This is not going to be done with a slack hand. Total devastation to the earth must ensue and all things must be brought back under the control of Jesus Christ and God the Father. And so, as these seven seals are opened, we're going to see a wave of God's fury that's unleashed upon the entire earth. Now, for now, though I don't want to leave you with those kinds of thoughts, not to be fearful, of course, because I want the people of God to rejoice. I want people to sing the song of the redeemed. Let's see God in heaven, the one who, uh, in Jesus Christ there, the one who brings us redemption. And so by faith and trust in him, the one who is worthy, the one who is our kinsman redeemer, the one who's born in a manger, the one who came to this earth was poor, who had no place to call his home, that's the one that we look to, the one who went to a cruel cross to pay for our sins. And he did that because every believer is in his plan of redemption. Friends, Jesus is worthy of our worship. He is worthy, and this is what we must do. We must worship the one who came to be our Savior. And I would ask you, will you worship him? Will you bow down before him and give him all the glory and honor, all the praise that's due him, because he alone is worthy? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that we've read here in Revelation chapter 5, and we see the absolute necessity of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus coming into the world, redemption is not possible. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, came to this world to die for us. Lord, we pray that you might help us to rejoice in that. As we look around the congregation tonight we believe nearly everyone here is saved and so all of us ought to be so thankful for what jesus did thank you for this study in jesus name we pray amen